Welcome to the Greater Philly Church Podcast, where you'll learn to connect to Jesus and others through great teaching, inspirational stories, and relevant content. I'm Matt Manny, the pastor of Greater Philly Church, and my goal is to help you understand yourself, your relationships, and life in light of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Thanks so much for listening. To make a decision, what I would call a vow, and let go of what I would call values. And in the process of holding on to these vows, we make these decisions, we make secret rules for ourselves that say, I can't talk to my husband, I can't talk to my wife, I can't talk to my loved one about these issues because I can't trust them. And so we're going to do just a brief review as we look back here for just a moment. As you see here in your notes, we talked about wounds these last several weeks, and the first key to working through these wounds is this, to understand that wounds shape how we view and interpret the world around us. It, it, uh, Amanda told me about Ashley's story and what she had shared yesterday at the ladies' meeting, and one of the very first things that she told me about was about her interaction with this counselor, with this therapist, to say, you can't share these things with people, and you're basically, you're stuck. And what's crazy is this, is you've got a, an individual who takes their viewpoint of the world telling a seven-year-old, this is how life is, this is the message you have to hear. Based off of what took place in your life, you're basically, you're going to be set aside. And what's so crazy is we have these wounds that shape how we then view and interpret the world. So for Ashley, that was her story. And maybe for you, you say, well, well that's kind of how I see life now, through these jaded uh, uh, eyes of saying, I can't trust people, I'm not worthy, I'm broken, and God can't use me. And then we go into the second statement that we find, and we talked about last week, that the most convincing story we tell ourselves shapes then how we view the world. So the most convincing story for Ashley, for her, was this, that because of my past, I'm not going to be able to be used by God, or there's really no hope for me in my life, and there's really no reason for me to go ahead and live, and I've shared this stat with you, that in the last 10 years, suicide rates have gone up by 70% for one reason, and that's because people lack purpose. They have no reason for themselves to get up in the morning. There's no purpose or intentionality for them. And so we find then As we work through this, our wounds then shape our view, and the story that we tell that is most convincing for us, it really shapes how we view life. But that brings us to this third statement, and we'll talk about this morning, is this, that the vows we make make us. The vows we make make us. So these choices we make, and, and what I loved about their story and about Ashley's story, and I think is so powerful, is we cannot diminish the choices that kids make. And our kids are downstairs right now and they're having fun and, and they're learning about communion today because we just ordered a thousand communion cups because we ran out. And so we're like, hey, let's, let's teach them how to drink grape juice, right? And if your kid comes up the steps and they're a little woozy, maybe we slipped in some cough syrup or something. I don't know. But we find, even for kids, and you could probably go back right now in your mind to a point as a child where you were embarrassed or hurt or something happened to you and you decided as a three, four, five, however, whatever age you might have been, I will, and you made this decision, you've made three statements to yourself about life. We'll look at those three statements here up on the screen. You make these vows, these statements, I have to, and then you fill in the blank. I have to perform. I have to be good. I have to whatever. I will always protect myself. I will always, whatever it is, you fill in the blank, or I will never. 
And I don't know if this is necessarily for how Ashley's story is, but to make this decision, I will never tell anybody my story. I will never let somebody abuse me or hurt me ever again. I will never go into a situation where I am not fully and, and comfortably in control of my environment because I will never let that happen again. And so we make these vows, we make these statements, I have to, you fill the blank, I will always... The problem is these vows, they will set the course for the rest of our lives. And in the process, what's, what's difficult is that these vows do not produce a healthy outcome. Because these vows, they will come forward and they'll transform into, into different types of living. And we're going to look at this, as you see here in your notes, there's seven different types of vows that we make. Now there's, there's possibly more, but we're just going to hit seven of them briefly to understand this full picture. The first vow that we make, the first type of vow is this. As you see there in your notes, I have to be self-sufficient. Maybe you went through a situation in life where your parents, they struggled with finances as a kid. And so for you, you made this decision, my parents can't take care of me, so I have to take care of me. Maybe you come from a, a broken situation where your parents uh, weren't there, so your grandparents raised you. Or you grew up in a foster home or a difficult situation like that where you said, nobody's looking out for me, so I have to look out for myself. So self-sufficiency, if somebody tries to help you, uh-uh, I don't need your help because I can take care of me. The second vow that we possibly could make is this. I have to be perfect. If you got smacked around or slapped or hurt as a child, if you came through a certain parochial church upbringing and you got slapped on the hand for not using your right hand, possibly, you might have this mindset, I can't fail, I have to be perfect. As you see there in your notes, it's this, I can't fail, so I have to perform and work uh, to, to be the best. It's this perfectionist idea. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing things well and doing things perfectly. There's nothing wrong with uh, pursuing to do things right and excellent. But if the, the motivation is I can't fail because I'm not good enough, because it's, I'm never going to be accepted by God, then we have an unholy, a bad vow. The third vow we make is this, I have to be busy. If your parent ever told you or somebody ever told you or accused you of maybe being lazy or not hardworking and maybe they pushed and pressured you to, you have to constantly be on the move. It could be this, that you have a vow, I have to be busy. As you look there in your notes, it's I can't be accused of being lazy so I have to keep myself busy. It forms and, and, and works itself into being a workaholic that I can never have a moment of silence and the problem with this vow that we make is we are so busy that God can't even keep up with us. We're so busy that we fill our lives with all this noise and all this busyness that we never have a time or a moment to actually sit still and hear the voice of God speak to us because we're afraid of what he's going to say. We're afraid that in the stillness and in the moment, we're really going to see ourselves for as broken and as ugly and as rejectable and unlovely as can be. And if we have to face ourselves in the mirror, and we can't stand the thought of that. And so what do we do? We just stay busy. Number four is this. This vow of I have to be accepted. As you see in your notes there, I have to be accepted because I can't be rejected. So I can't let anybody down or be disappointed. So I have to be a people pleaser. And so in this process of being a people pleaser, we find ourselves never saying no. And we have no concept of boundaries, of appropriate boundaries. And so if somebody comes and asks us to do something, we have to say yes. Why? Because we don't want to let them down. And we have to be accepted. This is, this is my vow. This is what I did as a kid. And I do now. I don't want to let people down. Why? Because I don't want people to reject me because I want to be accepted. And so I struggle as a people pleaser. Number five, 
is this. I have to be loved. I have to be loved. As you look there in your notes, I can't be alone. I can't be by myself. We have certain children of ours that better than disciplining them, if we just tell them, go, you have to go be by yourself away from everybody else, that's like the worst discipline for them. It drives them crazy because they like being around people. And maybe for you, you were lonely as a kid. Maybe you're an only child and you're lonely as a kid. You never really were around people. And so for you, you say, I have to be loved. And as you look there, you say, I can't be alone. So I'll do whatever it takes to be loved, even to the point that I'll go into unhealthy relationships and I'll seek codependent relationships. You need me to need you to need me because I need you to need me kind of stuff. If that's confusing, it's okay. You need to be loved. We'll just put it there. Number six, the sixth vow is this. This is a tough one. This is a competency issue. I have to be right. You know anybody like that in your life? They can never, ever, ever, never, never, ever, 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 ever be wrong. They always have to be right. As you see there in your notes on the second page, I can't be wrong, so I have to hold my ground and confront people and conflict with people. Why? Because being argumentative is the way I win, and that's how I live life. I've sat with people and we've talked about things and they will, they will tell me to my face, I know I am right and you are wrong. And thank God for Google. Because you can Google Google and you can find out real quick that they're wrong. Now, if you go to Wikipedia, it's 50-50. You never know. I mean, they could write their own article to prove that they're right, right? So we find this process, a person who's very argumentative, I have to be right, they can never be wrong. And man, oh man, the number one thing they will not say is, I'm sorry, please forgive me. And they would die before saying, I was wrong. Number seven, the seventh vow. And this one, especially if you've come from an abusive situation, it's control. You're not going to walk into a room unless you know all the exits. You're not going to get into a situation unless you can know who's there and who's going to be there. You're not going to put yourself in a situation unless you can be in control. As you see in your notes, I can't trust authority, I can't trust friends, or people who try to get close to me, so here's how I handle things. To control, I criticize, I complain, I compare things, and I take matters into my own hands. This person becomes an incredible cynic. Nothing is ever good enough. And as you look at life, if you struggle with this issue, your cynicism and your criticism is destroying everybody around you. Because of the lack of trust that you have with people, because of the unhealthy relationships and the, the unholy, if you will, vows that you've made, you shoot down everybody around you, and you don't trust anybody, and at the end of the day, when you look around you, nobody's left standing. And when you're in a point where you need help and you need some hope, there's nobody left there to help you up. Why? Because you've criticized and you've been a cynic and you shot everybody down. So here's the problem. The vows that we make make us. We think those things help us, but here's the reality. You see there in your notes. The vows we think that make us, they ultimately break us. Those vows, they don't help us, but they ultimately break us. As you look there, you can see next, what's the answer then? What's the God-given answer for us? The God-given answer for us from the Bible, and we're going to look at this incredible story this morning in these last few moments, is this, to trust Trust that God can work, and look how, there's two different ways. He can work in spite of people who have abused you and hurt you, but he can also work because of people. And it may not be those same people, but
But there are good people out there. There are people that you can trust. There are people who will love you and who will understand you. And you've heard this morning of two incredible individuals who've shared their story. And I promise you, you come to them, they're not going to say, well, you should have tried harder. Or it's your fault. You shouldn't have put yourself in that situation. The, the incredible heart and empathy for them to go ahead and stand and say, I am here today because of a difficult situation that happened to me, and I'm okay. It's so powerful because of who they know who they are, because of who actually knows who she is in Jesus Christ. She knows her worth is in Jesus Christ. As you take a look here in your notes, you can take your Bibles and look this morning. You can look up on the screen. This story of Ruth from the Old Testament book of Ruth is an incredible story of two women who went from through some incredible hardship. And for those of you maybe who haven't worked through this uh, series with us, we'll uh, do just a, a brief talk through with you to lead us up to this point where we're going to talk about today. But the story of Ruth first starts, she doesn't even, she's not even mentioned early on in the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, there is this inciting incident, an event that takes place where there's famine in the country in the land of Israel. And a, a lady by the name of Naomi, she and her husband decide to flee the land and they go to another country called the country of Moab where they're they're not invited, they're aliens, they're immigrants, and they go to this land to get food. And while they're there, their two sons end up getting married. And those two sons, they get married, and as the process of time happens, uh, uh, Naomi's husband, he ends up passing away, and her two sons end up dying. So now you've got an issue of famine and an issue of loss of some loved ones. And Naomi's name means pleasant, and when she finds out that the land of Israel, that they now, in her hometown, just happens to be the city of Bethlehem, and she finds out that they now have, uh, they've had rain and now they have a good harvest and so she can go back home and she can get food and she can begin to, to pick up where she left off before, minus a husband and two sons. And so she tells her daughters-in-law, you can stay here, stay in your country, let me go, let me be because God has afflicted me, God has wounded me. And through the course of these events, it's amazing because Ruth goes back and uh, with Naomi, and Orpah stays there in Moab, but Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem, and when they get to town, at the end of chapter 1, everybody says, look, isn't this Naomi? You've been gone for over a decade. Naomi, the pleasant one. And Naomi's response to everybody is, I'm not, I'm not Naomi anymore. God broke me, and now I'm bitter. And she says, call me Mara, which means bitterness, because God has wounded me and God has afflicted me. What's amazing in this whole story in the book of Ruth is God is never, never gets involved with doing a miracle. God never shows up in the form of an angel or in a prophet speaking his words. It's just the, the affairs of men and women doing their lives and talking here and there about God and his lack of involvement. And what's so crucial and so amazing about this story is Naomi, as she comes back into Bethlehem with Ruth, she says, Ruth, we're, we're going to have to go ahead and take care of ourselves, and, and Ruth, because you're younger, would you go ahead and help me, and, and would you go out to the fields and, and basically beg and ask for some help with some of the, uh, the grains from these fields? And she says, by the way, we do have a family member who's got a, a pretty nice field, so if you just happen to go to his field, make sure you find Boaz and get some grain from his field. Chapter 2, Naomi sends Ruth out. Ruth comes back with about a five-gallon bucket of grain. And Naomi says, where have you been? And she says, I found Boaz's field. And he's going to help us and take care of us. We talked about last week that basically the months of April and May, back in those days, are the harvest time for barley and for wheat. So for about a two-month period, Ruth got up every day and she went out to the field and she worked. 
and she worked through this process. And what we find is this. At the end of that passage, at the end of chapter 2, it kind of leaves us off that they're taken care of for a moment, but that God's not done with working through people. That leads us to chapter 3 as we look here this morning and understand this concept of trusting God to work in spite of the difficulties and in spite of those things that God still works through. There are some good people still out there. As you look in your notes or your Bibles this morning, you can look up on the screen. Ruth chapter 3 will find that there's different people have different plans laid out and Ruth has to choose to trust these people. We'll go ahead and put this up on the screen. We find, first of all, Naomi had a plan. It says in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, Now Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, don't seek rest for thee. And she says, I want it to be well with you. Verse 2, she goes on, she says, Now is not Boaz of kindred in whose, uh, with whose maidens you were. She says, You've been working in Boaz's field. Now here's the next step. Behold, he's winnowing his barley tonight in the threshing floor. Back in those days, they would have a central community threshing floor that everybody would have access to in the town. And so as the farmers would reap their harvest, they would have to take their grain and the stalks of grain, and they'd take them to a threshing floor, and so they would take these sheaves of wheat or barley, and they would beat them out in the threshing floor, most likely on the top of a hill outside the city, because they wanted to be in a place where this building, this threshing floor, would have lots of windows and lots of open air so the wind could blow through. And so they would take these sheaves and they would beat them on the ground, and so they would uh, knock off all the grains onto the floor of the threshing floor, and then they would take the stalks and they'd kind of toss them aside, and then they would begin to take uh, kind of like a pitchfork and they'd pick up the grain and they would toss it into the air, and those kernels on the outside of the grain, they'd be broken off and they would be blown away, and the heavy grain would then fall back to the ground. And so they'd stomp on the grain some more to crush those kernels. They might bring in an animal, maybe a, an ox or a donkey, to go ahead and come in and crush that grain up. And then they would pick it up and throw it in the air, and the wind would blow through, and then the grain would fall. And they would do this process over and over and over again until all they had left were the grain. And they would take that grain, they would sweep it up and kind of put it into a pile. And so for Boaz, he was working most likely late at night, uh, working uh, into the uh, late night hours, and then he would stay there at the thresh threshing floor so nobody would come and steal his stuff. Sounds kind of like Delaware County, right? And so he'd hang out there all night watching his pile of grain so that nobody would come steal it. And so Ruth's, uh, Naomi says to Ruth, this is what he's going to be doing tonight. And what's, what's crazy is, as, as Christians and sometimes in the church, we can kind of like take these stories and, and sterilize them and make them, you know, like flannel, we flannel graph them, we flatten them, and we kind of take the heart and emotion out of them. But I want you, as we work through this story, to relive these moments again in a new light and really seeing things through the eyes of Ruth and begin to see things through the eyes of Boaz. Because as we go to verse 3, we find this, Naomi gives some very clear instruction to Ruth. She says, wash up. Put on some perfume. She says, put thy raiment upon thee and get thee down to the floor. Go out to the threshing floor. What's interesting about this instruction for Ruth, because she had lost her husband, traditionally speaking, in the culture back in those days, she would have worn the garb of somebody who had lost their husband. Now, we don't do this in our society today, nowadays, in, in the 2000s, but years ago, women would sometimes wear black as a sign of mourning. They would continue to wear black because it was a sign of, I'm a widow. And so we find here, she says, get rid of those garments that say that you're a widow. I want you to put on a fresh pair of clothes and go down to this threshing floor. But she says this, 
make sure you hang out here for just a moment. She says, don't make yourself known unto him until he has done, he's done eating and drinking. She says, kind of hang back and watch when Boaz has finished his work, and then let him have his dinner, and then let him go to sleep. In verse 4, then, we jump in here, and she continues on, and it says, And it shall be when he lies down that you're going to mark the place where he is uh, lied down, and you're going to go in and uncover his feet and lay down at his feet, and then he's going to tell you what you're going to do. This is some weird mumbo-jumbo kind of stuff. Seriously. Like, she's going to be caught for a B&E, right? And then when she gets in there, who knows? He's not going to pull out something and hurt her, shoot her. Who knows what? She's an intruder. But she's going to go in, and what's interesting is the placement and the arrangement of all these different things. Now, if you are at home and you're lying snug as a bug in a rug in your bed with sugar plums dancing in your head, and you've just had a really good dinner, baked potato and some meat, you know, you feel really good. And you go to bed, and then all of a sudden somebody creeps in unbeknownst to you, and they lay down next to you in bed. What are you going to do? You're going to freak. You're going to think, man, somebody's coming on to me, right? This is highly inappropriate. I can't believe we're talking about this in church. But she didn't. She didn't go lie next to him. It says here, go in and lay down at his feet, uncover his feet. Now, what's interesting about this? You don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise my hand for you. I don't sleep with socks on. Maybe a shocker, but I don't sleep with socks on. And when I sleep, I always have one foot out from under the covers. That's my temperature control for my body to keep my body regulated. And every once in a while, my kids will come and ruin my regulation because they will come in and they will uncover my feet thinking that I will protect them and take care of them. And I do not like that because they wake me up. But if you can think, I remember as a kid, my parents would always tell me, make sure when it's cold out, you put a hat on because you lose 70% of your body heat through your head. And make sure you wear socks to bed because it keeps your feet warm and it keeps your body regulated. So think about this. She uncovers his feet. And that's a, that's a brave act in and of itself. You never know where those dogs have been, right? And so she uncovers his feet. It's all symbolic, but there's also some physicality to it that he's going to probably end up going, wait a minute, my toes are cold. We go on then, and we find in verse 5, and what's interesting is this, as we go to verse 5, Ruth trusts Naomi, and she says, all that you've told me to do, I'll do. Can you imagine somebody coming along, you've been hurt, you've been wounded, you've been struggling, and somebody comes and says, here, let me tell you what to do. And it doesn't make any sense at all. It's crazy. And she goes down to the floor and did according as her mother-in-law had told her to do. And we jump to verse 8. She does all this stuff. She sees Boaz lay down. She goes in and she uncovers his feet. And we'll go to verse 8. We find this, that Ruth trusts Boaz because the sleeping giant comes awake. It says it came to pass about midnight that the man was afraid. Why? Because his feet were uncovered, right? Wouldn't you be a little bit fearful if all of a sudden you woke up and like your blankets were gone and all kinds of craziness were happening? And he was slightly afraid and he turned himself and he behold, a woman lay at his feet. This is crazy. And so then we jump to verse 9, and it says, and he says to her, who are you? Now, why would he say this? Because there's no lights on in the threshing floor, and he can't see. So he says, who are you? Now, there's other stories in the Bible that talk about crazy stuff happening. Like, remember, remember Jacob on his wedding night? The next day he wakes up, and he married the wrong woman? All kinds of craziness is happening, right? 
And so she says, I am Ruth, your handmaid. I'm Ruth, the one that's been working in your fields. What's interesting is Ruth's name is mentioned 12 times throughout the book of Ruth. Five times she's mentioned as Ruth the Moabitess. That is her background, that's her identification. Moabites were not necessarily really welcomed in the land of Israel. At this point in time, in chapter 3, verse 9, this is the first time where she identifies herself not as a Moabitess, but she now is taking on a new identity. And her identity is connected with this individual, with Boaz. And she says, spread your skirt over me, your handmaid, for you are near kinsman. That's some symbolism here. This is part of their culture. And the idea is this, is that for somebody who was married and their husband had passed and they didn't have any kids, according to culture, another family member would come and would take care of that individual. And if they were not married, they would go ahead and marry that individual so that they could go ahead and raise up a child unto the name of the one who had been deceased. In the New Testament, the Sadducees come to Jesus with a little bit of a crazy story that's kind of like this, and they say, if a woman gets married and she passes, uh, her husband passes away, and he happens to be uh, one of seven brothers, and the second brother comes and he passes away, and if you remember the story, it's like a, a bad version of seven brides for seven brothers. There's just not seven brides, there's just seven brothers. And so with this story, Boaz, he is a possible candidate to go ahead and marry Ruth. And she says, would you take your, your blanket and cover me up down at your feet. Now, two reasons. One is, as culturally, that was what the sign was that he would accept her, her proposal to be engaged, but also she was co- probably cold. You got a threshing floor out, in the, out off, off the outskirts of town. It's up on a hill somewhere, and it's breezy. It's going to be cold. So she says, hey, I'm a little chilly. Would you kind of cover me up? And by the way, would you be engaged to me? We go on then to verse 10, and look how Boaz responds. By the way, you wake up any man in the middle of the night, especially if they're older, probably not going to get this kind of response. They're probably going to get, get out of here, you, you know, fill in the blank. But he says to her, he's in a good mood, blessed art thou of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness in the latter end than in the beginning. And look at this, and this is really interesting. We're going to jump into this for just a moment. Inasmuch as you follow us not young men, whether poor or rich, Boaz had a chance to go ahead and pursue Ruth. But he didn't. Why? Because of her age. And because there was the possibility that she had somebody who was closer to her in in relationship, another kinsman, if you will, who had the first right of refusal, who could have redeemed her, who could have taken care of her, who could have uh, 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 been her protector. And he says, because you're younger, I figured you'd go after one of the young guys, which tells us what about Boaz. He's probably a little bit older. Now, we don't know how older. We're not sure, but we know he's old enough that he has a decent business. He's making some good money. And what's interesting about this is most men back in those days wouldn't have been at his position and stature of livelihood without having at least a wife and some children. So we don't know because the scriptures don't tell us, but we could surmise possibly that he lost his wife as well and possibly that he would would have lost his children as well. Because of, as the scenario plays out, he says, I'm the only one here as far as being engaged with you. And he says, you've shown kindness to me because you have other options, but you're coming here. We go then to verse 11, and he says, now my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do to you all that you've required, for the city of my people knows that you are a virtuous woman. She had a fantastic reputation. 
even in the midst of all her hurt, she still chose to respond to the wounds with the right heart. You can't change the wounds of your past, and you can't change the messages that you're being told from your past, but you do have a choice in how you respond to those wounds. You have a choice in how you respond to your hurts and to your abuse and to your brokenness. And so he says you've responded virtuously. And then we go on to verse, uh, uh, verse 14, where we find this, that she lay at his feet until the morning, and she rose up before one could know another. What's that saying? Well, if you've ever seen and you're spying on your neighbors, and you say, look, there's Ruth. And she left the guy's house early in the morning with the same clothes she was wearing when she went there last night. Hmm. You could assume some things, right? And so she has the virtue to say, there's no nonsense going on here. And she leaves before anybody else would see her. And what's amazing is this, God is still never mentioned. What happens from this point, because of time, or we'll abbreviate it slightly, but Boaz tells Ruth, listen, you've got somebody else who has the first right of refusal to take care of you and to marry you. And I'm going to go find him and talk to him and find out if he wants to marry you and, take the, and, and uh, have, have the first opportunity to take care of you. If he says no, then I'm going to go ahead and step forward and I'm going to claim you as, as your husband, as my wife, and I'm going to go ahead and take care of you and your mother. So what happens from here? He sends her back home and he sends her home with about two weeks worth of grain. So what's that mean? She doesn't have to work for two weeks. That's nice, right? That's a nice time off. So she goes back home, and in verse 16 we find this. When she gets home, she comes into her mother-in-law. We'll go ahead and put verse 16 up there. It's AJ Forrest. It says, when she came home to her mother-in-law, she said, her mother-in-law says to her, who are you, my daughter? Now, you get some sense that there's some kind of irony here. Maybe Naomi had Alzheimer's. That could be very problematic of an issue. Maybe she was just was some kind of like colloquialism for their culture, or maybe she was using some irony there, or maybe it was just dark and she didn't see who it was. But I think there's some irony. She says, who are you? Who art thou, my daughter? She's saying, hey, is this Mrs. Boaz coming? Right? Who's coming in here? And she told her all that the man had done for her. And in verse 18, we find this. And this is so amazing. As you work through your wounds, and maybe you're not at the point of where Ashley's at, and you say, oh, I don't have a husband. I don't got a husband that has an awesome beard like that, okay? You say, I don't have anybody to help me work through my stuff. We find here there's some incredible insight and some encouragement for us. Naomi says, sit still, my daughter. She says, wait, until you know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he has finished the thing this day. You realize that you may have nobody working on your behalf to help you work through and process your issues. But in this story, if you can empathize with Ruth and realize that Boaz is just like Jesus Christ, that Jesus gave himself for you. He died for you because of the incredible worth he sees in your life, because of the incredible worth and value he sees in your brokenness and your abuse in your past. And so for you, you might be here and you might be saying, but what can I do? And the answer is absolutely nothing. What can I do to, to gain worth in my life? Absolutely nothing, because you already have it. It's already there. And let Jesus work on your behalf. And we find this as we stop and we put a pin in this, because next week we'll wrap up with Ruth chapter 4 and we'll find out what happens. But it's going to be a good thing. Spoiler warning, it works out. And what we find is this. So what does all this mean? How does this all work out? As you look here in your notes, as we wrap up this morning, so what does this mean for your life? 
those vows that you have, those vows that you have, here's the opportunity for us today, that God has values for us. Take those God-given values with a new set of vows and make a life worth living. To let go of those old vows and exchange them for new values, and those new values will give us new vows to live our lives. So what can you do about it today? What are some values that we can hold to? As you see here in your notes, new values, God's values that lead to new vows. Number one, God can be trusted as the vow, or as the value. What's the new vow? I will trust God. The new vow is this, because God can be trusted, I will choose now to trust God. Number two, the second vow that we can make is I will choose to accept that I am accepted by God. The value is this, that God accepts you. And so for many of us, if you're struggling here this morning, you can't accept that you're accepted because you know you. And other people have rejected you. So if other people have rejected you and you can't get away from you either, then why would God accept me? Why would he love me? Because of how good and great a God he is. Number three, the third value is this. I will find, I will fulfill my God-given potential. I am so excited for what Corey and Ashley are doing. They are living out their potential and purpose for their lives. They are doing something that for literally hundreds of thousands of millions of people cannot do to bring purpose out of their pain. That God has worked in your past and as bad as the situation might be that you're going through, to realize that God doesn't waste the pain. That God hasn't brought you to this point just to say, oh well, I'm sorry, you messed up. I don't have any plan B's in my land, in my world, in my vernacular. I don't have any second chances. But God does. If God didn't have second chances, we wouldn't be here today. God would have said, forget this whole concept of humanity. Adam and Eve blew it. So I'm going to go ahead and create some aliens. All right? Let's just do that. Some creatures that don't look anything beautiful and just that live in space pods out in the middle of nowhere. But you have potential. And for you here this morning... They, they, this is not their full-time thing right now. They have day jobs. Ashley's the teacher. And I, I don't know. I, don't, I want to be careful not to speak on her behalf. But I don't know that, that eventually this is going to be their full-time thing. That this is going to be their passion. But they want to be living and breathing helping people. To see more and more people walk the aisle. To see more and more people get help and hope. To realize that right now there's some girl somewhere who's contemplating suicide because she has the exact same story as Ashley. And she doesn't feel like she can tell anybody. And if we could get Ashley's story into this girl's hands, she would have incredible hope. And maybe there's somebody in here this morning that you, you, you kind of heard about today, but she didn't really know about it because, like, what churches interview people on the stage on Sunday mornings? And, like, that's just different, you know? But you're here today and you heard an, an incredible message of hope and realizing that that hope, that can lead you to fulfill God's plan and purpose in your life. We find this then... How can we bring this full circle for us? What's at stake? If we don't understand how to align and get rid of those old vows and have new values and align ourselves with what God has for us, we will continue to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people. And most importantly, we'll miss out on God's grace being expressed in our lives. There's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing to be ashamed of of what's going on in your past. And here's the deal. This is just a side note. This is not in your notes, but this is a freebie. You can jot it down. If somebody doesn't like what happened in your past, if somebody rejects you from sharing your story 
of what God did or what God allowed or what happened in your life, and you want to share that, most likely there is something they are hiding in their past that they are afraid, deathly afraid anybody would find out. And you can be guaranteed dollars to donuts. We don't have any donuts today. But you can be guaranteed you are making them uncomfortable. And that's okay. They don't have to hear your message. They don't have to know your story. They don't have to do anything because they have their own path that they're walking and their own process, and they may not be ready. But if you're here today and you've gotten some hope and help from Ashley and realize if she can share it, I can share it too. If she can tell her story, that's okay. I I can share mine too, and that's okay. But there are people, like a Boaz, who will say, you know what? I accept you. I love you. I hear you. I am for you. And there will be people that will say, I don't get it. I don't like it. I'm not comfortable with it. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. There are some people that just, they're not comfortable with these conversations, and that's okay. But for Greater Philly Church, for our ministry, for your life, as a member, as an attender here, my encouragement and challenge to us would be this, is to find ourselves fulfilling our potential for God to help people. We have this last statement, then we'll wrap up with a word of prayer. The goal today is this, align God's values with new vows to live a life worth living. Your life has worth and value. And it's just a matter of time working through this process and realizing your wounds do not shape you, messages, they don't have to be the interpretation of the rest of your life. It's how you respond and how you align yourself with God's values for your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the time to come before you this morning. And God, I pray that you'd help us as we work through this process. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I hope it was encouraging and inspiring. If you'd like to know more information about Greater Philly Church, you can go online to greaterphilly.church. You can also find information on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook about the church as well. I'd love to be able to connect with you on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt, M-A-T-T, Manny, M-A-N-N-E-Y. I've also got a blog with great content that you can find more information about at mattmanny.com. I hope the message today helped you to understand yourself, your relationships, and Jesus better in light of what he's done for you. Thanks so much for listening.